Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. B plus, huh? Well, I have one more announcement. This is Pastor Brandon's last Sunday. There'll be a potluck lunch afterward. <laughs> I love coming here so much. Oh, man, I see new faces every time I'm here. It's such a treat. And like Pastor Brandon said, um, if, you're, if this is your church home, you know, Tuesday night, I'd encourage you to come out and let's start a conversation together that uh, we've been having prayerfully together, he and I and the elders of the church and other leaders um, join that conversation with us. I believe the spirit that lives in you lives in me, if you're a believer. And uh, he's going to speak to you, he's going to speak to me, and he's going to kind of, over time, we're going to be in this conversation together around where the Lord wants to lead us. And so we're going to start this conversation, um, and I'd love for you to be a part of it. So that's Tuesday night. Don't forget to register or no cookies. Maybe you can just register for a cookie, grab one and leave. I don't know. Maybe that's, that'll be between you and the Lord. Okay. So I was in high school, and I was at Menards for maybe the third time that, that day. That's how home projects went for my dad and I when we were doing stuff. And we're leaving Menards, and as we're coming to the, the car that we had as a kid, which was uh, a 1999 Mercury Villager, baby blue. So, you know, we were the cool kids in town. And, uh, and, you know, that's when minivans peaked, I think, actually, if I'm honest. This was, that was a great year for the Mercury Villager. And we're coming out to this thing, and there's way more rust on it than we remember. Like, we're looking at it going, there's a lot more there than the last time I think we looked at this thing. And then my dad noticed, like, the tailpipe was, like, hanging off the frame lower than it. He, did, he remembered it. Like, it seemed the exhaust pipe thing was, was way, like, almost dragging on the street. And then he goes around the corner to the driver's side. I'm around the passenger side waiting for my dad to unlock it. And he's trying to get the key in the door, and it's just not going in. And it's like he's jamming that thing in there, and it's not going in. The car's, like, rocking back and forth. And, and uh, you can all right now in your heads, like, right now, you know exactly where this is headed. Like, you can fill in the rest of the story. You've seen this movie before. But not my dad. He's going to go for it. So he's, he finally gets the door open. Like, I don't even know how that happened. He got the door open sits in there and he, he pushes a little button it unlocks my side and I get in close the door and he's trying to get the key in the ignition and it's just not happening it's not going in he's like jamming it in there and it's not working out and uh and just like in the movies like at the exact same time my dad and I both like look at each other and then we look down and there's a cooler that's filled with ice the top is off of it and it's filled with beer <laughs> and then my dad and I look up at each other and then he explodes out the side of his door, and I explode out of my door and grab a couple beers. And then, um, <laughs> just kidding, we didn't do that. But I, I bust out of the door, and we just tear, tear into the parking lot because it's not our car. Like, it's, it wasn't somebody else's car. And if you were watching this from like a Menard's window, like watching the parking lot, you'd see two dudes get in a car, sit in it for two minutes, and then just explode and scatter into the parking lot randomly. Um, we did not intend that day to almost commit Grand Theft Auto, but that is what happened. Uh, we almost stole a car. Now, this is a beautiful picture of wisdom because wisdom is about 
discerning the signs and the clues of life on how to navigate it. And, and that, in that moment, that, that afternoon at Menards, none of us intended, my dad and I did not intend to steal a car. We didn't have this like nefarious, malicious intent to get into this thing and take this car. It wasn't what we were trying to do. But we just missed <laughs> the clues, right? We just weren't discerning. It was a wisdom problem. And so we, this, this problem of, of being foolish or not being wise, it can have serious consequences. It's a big deal. And if we're honest, most of life's questions or issues have to deal with wisdom. You know, I'm not saying that there's not parts of your life that are choosing between good and evil. I'm not saying there's not temptation. Um, but most of life is about just navigating what's wise in this moment. Which direction should I go? What kind of career should I pursue? What kind of schooling should I pursue? What neighborhood should we live in? Um, what, what kind of, uh, what, what should I do with this business? Should I sell it? Should I keep it? Should I grow it? I mean, these are decisions that actually have very significant consequences, big deal. But they're not necessarily moral questions. They're more about wisdom. So this is a big deal. And we're going to ask ourselves, say, a couple questions. What is wisdom? How do we really use it to make decisions? So what is it, uh, what, what it's not? And then how do we get it? How do we get this wisdom? And we're going to do it right in Proverbs chapter 1, first seven verses of the whole book. And I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to pick out just a few things that jump off the page here. So I have a different translation than you do behind me. It's the same, same book Bible. It's just a different translation. you got to remember, this is a Hebrew text originally. We translate it to English, and there's sometimes a couple different words you can use. But it's, it's the same, same book. Okay, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel... For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise discipline. Now, a couple things. First, what is wisdom as we see it here laid out for us? What the author is doing here is they're using uh, multiple words and multiple pictures to describe what wisdom is. They're kind of giving you a, a, a flyover of trying to help you define wisdom. The word wisdom itself, the etymology of that word includes a, another word like this. It includes the word notice to notice stuff. In many ways, wisdom is about, is about observing. The way it kind of shows up here in the text is insight, being able to see things that other people can't see. When uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock's Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, in that movie, when he walks into a room, a murder scene or something, something, some crime happened, he's looking for what? Clues. And because he's Sherlock, he notices maybe 15 clues and uh, his buddy Watson can only notice like five, or you and I can only notice a couple. But he's really good, he's really perceptive, he can notice more, and that's kind of what wisdom is trying to get at, building notice th things. Uh, you might have a friend that you go to when you are between a rock and a hard place, and you're like, there's no way out of this problem. And you go to the friend, and they're like, well, I see three things you can do to get out of that problem. Okay, it's wisdom, the ability to see things, opportunities and things other people can't see. But here's what's also true about wisdom. It's not less than morality itself, like moral decisions, 
but it is more. And here's what I mean by that. We all know people, well-meaning, good-intentioned people that lack wisdom, right? There's people not in here, but out there, right? That they're, they're well-intentioned. They're good people. They, they, they love others. They love God even, but they just don't, they don't observe stuff. They can't see things. They get themselves into sticky situations because they just, they didn't, they weren't wise. They weren't discerning about something, but they're, they're good people. They're well-motivated people. They're moral people. But wisdom is more than just good and evil, choosing between bad and good. So here's what we have to understand. It's this ability to navigate the complexity of, of the world, but you have to understand something. It's not less, it's not less than morality. Look at, look at what it says here. Wisdom, these Proverbs are for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. You know what that means? You can't be evil and be wise. If, listen, if you're working out what you believe about God and you're spiritually uh, undecided, still trying to figure that out, this is, this is a wonderful church to do that at. It's a safe place to be working out what you believe about God. You can belong here before you believe. That's a really important thing to hear. You need to understand we're all on a journey and there are people here today that are even trying to figure this out. That's okay, I'm so glad you're here. And I want you just for a second though, for the sake of the conversation today, just ascend to this idea that there is a God, okay? If you don't believe there is, um, but just for the sake of this point I'm trying to make, ascend to the idea there is a God and he has a moral standard. He has a moral code for what is right and wrong and what is fair and just in the world. And let's just say for a second, you don't hit that, like, or you're gonna live contrary to that, or you're gonna blow that off. Wouldn't you argue that that's not just offensive to God, but it's also like kind of dumb, right? If there, is a, if there is a God who is sovereign and control thing, controls things, has a say in your eternal destiny, wouldn't you say it's, it's unwise to just blow him off on areas of justice and morality? So what, what scripture is saying here is, it is not just offensive to God, it is also dumb to be evil to be unjust, to be unfair, to do what is wrong. So wisdom, how do I define it? Just with what the scripture is giving us here this morning, it's the ability to navigate, to competently navigate the complexities and the reality of the way God made the world. God ordered and made the world. In fact, in Proverbs 3, it talks about God set everything in place. He says, by wisdom, he set uh, the depths of the sea the mountains, the foundations of the earth were laid by his wisdom. Every system in biology and in physics and even in fin the financial systems of sowing and reaping and the relational, uh, the systems of justice and how we deal with one another, all of those systems, by God's wisdom, he put them in place. And what is clear throughout this whole book is that when you run perpendicular to the grain of the wood and the grain of the way God made the world to work, you get splinters, something, something feels off. And I, and I wanna say everyone's anxiety is, is reduced to this simple idea, but I just wanna say this, we do live in a world where there are schools and businesses and homes full of people with anxiety. And yet we also live in a world that says there is no such thing as a right and a wrong. There's no absolute truth that is universal for everybody. And there is certainly no reason to listen to the book 
to open the book up, to hear the way that God made things, and then to order your life according to the way he made things. And we wonder why everybody just feels off all the time. When you run against the grain of the way God ordered the world, the reality of the way God made the world, you live in an alternate reality, and you run against the wood and you get splinters. So let's talk about what wisdom is not. And the way I want to do that is I want to lift two words out of this passage here to help us unpack what I would call this scale and this range of being unwise. On one end of the scale, on one end of the range, I mean, it's all un, it's, there's no wisdom here, okay? It's all un, unwise. But on one end of the unwise is the fool, and on one end of this unwise spectrum is the simpleton. Those are the two words in this text we see, the simple and the foolish. Let's start with the foolish. It says here that the, that, um, the fools despise wisdom. What is a fool? All throughout Proverbs, you'll see this reference to the fool. The fool is somebody. Listens to nobody. This guy doesn't listen to anybody. He's only right in his own eyes. And it could be a she, too. Uh, so, but they, basically, they don't listen to people. They only, if it makes sense to them, if it's the way they see the world, then it's right. If they don't see it that way, then it's wrong. Uh, they don't, they don't, they read the Bible, and if it doesn't make sense to them, if that's not the way they would do it, if they were God, they throw it out. The stuff that makes sense to them, they incorporate it. But they're only right in their own eyes. The other end of the spectrum, this person has the opposite problem. <laughs> They're the complete opposite. This is called the simpleton. They just, the best way for me to describe it is they just go with the flow. They just do what all the cool kids are doing. They don't think for themselves critically at all. They just go with whatever CNN says or whatever Fox News says. They don't digest it and think critically about anything. They just take whatever source they want and that's all, they just go with it. Whatever society says, Whatever our culture values is just, or whatever our culture says is right or moral, that's what they go with. They're simpletons. They just go with the flow. And you'll notice here that this passage refers to this in, in the same verse as uh, young people, as maybe adolescents or, or, or young adults or, or high school. Uh, it says here, this wisdom is for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Uh, being a simpleton is often a very very big challenge to our young people. You know, you've maybe heard the phrase, when you're, a, when you're a kid or when you're in high school or sometimes even a young adult, you want to fit in. And then when you become an adult, you want to stand out, right? Maybe you've heard that before. But particularly with our young people, they just, they don't, they don't struggle with the stuff adults do of like comparing what kind of house we have or what kind of vacations we take or how well behaved our kids are. You know, they don't deal with those problems of comparing against each other. They just have this, this, this insatiable desire to be accepted, to be included. They just have friends, they're socialite. That's all they have. So they'll just, they're just gonna go with whatever it takes to be included, however I need to walk, however I need to talk, however I need to look, whatever I need to like, whatever I need to be, behave like, that's what I'm gonna do because I just wanna be in. So being a simpleton is a major challenge to our young people, but all of it is unwise. But foolishness is too for young kids. In fact, there's a verse in Proverbs that talks about uh, foolishness being bound up in the heart of a child. Basically, your default autopilot mode as a kid is to think you know it all. Uh, my daughter is six, and she is absolutely confounded and, and befuddled 
as to why in the world she needs parents. Like, she is convinced that we are just a waste. Like, she knows exactly what time to go to bed. You know, she knows exactly how much candy she should be allowed to have. She is convinced that mom and dad are just a waste. <laughs> she doesn't need us. She could probably do it better without us, always frustrating her, right? And it says this foolishness exists from day zero in all of us, and we need discipline to help us learn, sometimes even the hard way, that we need to listen to people. We don't know it all. We don't have all the right answers. So what foolishness or what uh, wisdom is not? Well, it's this, these ends of the unwise spectrum. It's either thinking you know it all or just going with the flow. So the remaining question for us today is this. How do we get it? You know, when a lot of people come to my office looking for wisdom, it's usually around a uh, particular decision. And what they're looking for very often is like a, like a formula or like a math problem, like calculus. How, what, what do I got to do? What, give me the wisdom uh, to navigate this decision and I can just plug my decision in and out will come the wise answer. And, and there are principles to, you know, wise decision making. But this book is not going to give you a formula for making wise decision. What this book is about is helping you become a wise person. That's what this is about. It's about shaping you and helping you become a wise person, incorporating the values and, and the, the convictions of a wise person. That's what this book is about. And here's what you need to hear today, and this is what's probably hard to hear, is it's not going to give you a, a formula that you can apply in a moment. It's going to shape you over a process. That's a journey. But here's what you do know today. Here's what, here's what we're going to find out today, is that this book is really clear as to what the starting line is for that journey. There's, there's a very clear starting point in the journey. And it's right at the end of the passage I just read in verse 7, and it shows up all over this text. And it's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And it is this. The fear. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge. You'll see that all throughout the text. It's the beginning of insight. It's the beginning of of wisdom, the starting line for wisdom and the starting line for becoming a wise person that's not gonna run through the world and, and, and blow yourself up on a, on a hidden landmine. The, 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 the starting point to avoid so much unnecessary suffering in the world, the beginning of it is the fear of the Lord. And here's what that means. Here's what it means. It doesn't mean this doesn't mean that you can be wise, acquire wisdom, grow in your wisdom, and then when you're ready to get real wise, like the biblical proportion wise, then you're going to integrate this thing up here called the fear of the Lord. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean you can get as wise as you possibly can on your own, and then when you're ready on your own timing, you're going to incorporate this fear of the Lord thing. You know what it means? It means that up until that point, it's all <laughs> foolishness. 
foolishness, unwise, whatever it is, simpleton or the fool, whatever it is, it's all unwise until the starting line where you begin your journey on becoming a wise person with the fear of the Lord. That's how high the stakes are. That's what's at stake here. So let's unpack this. Everywhere else in Scripture, for the mo- not everywhere, but a lot of places in Scripture, not everywhere, but a lot of places you'll hear of fear as a bad thing. In fact, it's often one of the most commanded against things. It's a negative thing. You shouldn't have fear. You know, do not have fear. You know, it's a very common command in Scripture. And uh, it is, there are, there's, there's two kinds of fear in the Bible. There is a bad kind of fear, but there's also a good kind. Well, let me explain the bad kind. The bad kind of fear is often the kind of fear that shows up as the opposite of love. The opposite of love in the Bible is very often fear. It's not hate. It's not that there's hate and love. There's actually love and fear. And I, this is surprising. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, there's a, a passage where John is describing love as this, this ability to drive out all, and you'd think he would say, hate. Love drives out all malice. Love drives out all resentment. Love drives out all hate. But he doesn't. He, said love, he says love drives out all fear. Why? Because love in its highest form, the most white-hot kind of love, is the kind of love that would say, I will suffer I will endure, I will pay any cost because I love you. I love this thing so much. Love at its highest form is a, is a love that is willing to suffer. You know, when you, when, if you, if you have kids, when, you, when your kid gets hurt or when they're in a dangerous situation, you don't even think about it. You rush in there and you pull them out of the fire. You do whatever you gotta do. You don't even think about it. Why? Love drives out all fear when you love somebody. You do crazy things for love. I mean, I would endure an eight-hour drive to Indiana from here to visit Hannah and take her out for dinner for a night and then drive back eight hours all in the same day. You do crazy things for love, right? You go through Chicago two days, two times in a day. It's how crazy you do. You endure suffering for love. Fear is the opposite. Fear is I just love myself so much. I don't love anything in this relationship that will cost me that could potentially hurt me, I, I will keep at arm's length because I, I love, it's a self-preservation kind of fear. I love myself way more than I love you or whatever this relationship is pursuing. I'm gonna protect myself. Fear is the opposite of love. Love is, says, I will pay any cost. Fear says, I will never pay the cost. For my, as if it costs me, I'm not gonna get involved in this. The, op- the other kind of fear that's unhealthy is a fear that I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be hit over the head. I'm gonna be smited. At any given point, um, this person is going to betray me or hurt me. There's no trust, right? That is the opposite of love, is a fear of being betrayed because there's no trust in that loving relationship. Those are the unhealthy kinds of fear with God. And those are the kinds of fear that push you the opposite direction toward him. You don't go toward God, you go the other way. But there is a kind of fear that draws you in what is that fear? Well, I'm giving you two examples of this fear. The first I'm going to use is, a, is a, one of my favorite TV shows. And I don't even know if this show's on anymore. So if you'd like to send me a Facebook link to the show, I'll, <laughs> I'll burn my night away on that tonight. How's that? But it's the Antique Roadshow. And I think it's still going on. I actually think it's still around. I just, 
for whatever reason, haven't seen it in a while. But I love it because usually there's a moment where a guy brings this, like, usually a piece of china. It's like a teapot. And he brings it in. And, and the expert who studies that kind of antique goes, so where'd you get it? And he's like, it's usually like an estate sale in Missouri. I don't know why, it's just in my head. And so the guy got it, and he's like, I let my you know, six-year-old daughter play with it. She loves it for all of her tea parties, and her friends use it. And the expert says, well, how much do you think it's worth? And the guy's like, well, I got it for three bucks. And the guy's like, well, it's, it, it's, do you know how much it's worth? And he goes, I have no idea. And the expert says, you know, I think something like this could go at an auction for anywhere between fifty dollars and $60,000. And then like, bling, it shows up like 50 to 60 and the guy's face is supposed to be there, but he fainted because he can't believe it. You know, in that moment, right? Picking that teapot up, taking that thing home, putting it in the truck, it's gonna be a little bit of terror, right? There's gonna be some trembling going on. When you grab that, grab that antique and you set that on the shelf, you ain't letting your six-year-old daughter play with it, with her friends, with her tea party. You ain't letting her touch that thing. There's a fearful trembling when you're handling it or if it falls, you know, there's, a, there's, there's fear there. Why? It's so valuable. It's so incredibly valuable to you. Second kind of way that this fear would show up in your relationships. And I want to be careful about this one because I don't want to romanticize God. But, but, you know, for the guys in the room, if you can remember the first time you asked your wife out on a date, when you first met her or saw her across the room, you first asked her on a date, do you remember that? Was there some trembling there, right? Was there some fear? Yeah, I mean, for me, my feet sweat. I don't know why. I don't know why my feet just got sweaty. It's like every drop of sweat in my body was like everybody out through the basement. I have no, I don't even know why I'm sharing this right now. But maybe I should have some fear. <laughs> some, but, but, you know, there's trembling. There's fear of what? Fearing, fear of like making her, her look bad, right? There's fear of, of making her um, offended. You know, you don't want to get her uncomfortable. First of all, you certainly don't want to fear hurting her. You, or you certainly fear hurting her, right? That would be terrible to hurt this person you love. There is a joyful fear in a relationship because when you first meet this person, they're just glorious to you. They're just wonderful to you. You don't want to treat them casually. Your relationship with God and your journey to being a wise person this is the starting line. It is a healthy, joyful fear of God. How do you get that? How do you get there in your relationship with God where it is a fear that's, you're not afraid he's going to hit you over the head. There's, there's not a fear that he's going he's gonna to betray you. There's not even a fear of like, I don't want this to cost me anything. What if, I, what if following God is hard? How do you get to the fear that actually makes you want to rush in and be around him and, 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 and get up every day wondering where else are you offending him so that you can get aligned with what he teaches in his life and read this book and say, where else can I submit to his leadership? How do you get that kind of fear? Well, there's a very obscure little psalm that I read a while back. It's in Psalm 130, and it's a very surprising psalm. Let me read this to you. It's very shocking to me. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could ever survive? If you stared honestly at what your, your life cost God and the sin in your life, when you deal honestly with your own quiet, secret sins, and you look at them for real, what they really are, and if God kept a record of those, 
But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to what? You'd think right there it would say, love God. You'd think it would say, um, worship God, that we might worship you, we might love you, um, we might have affection for you. It doesn't say that. It says fear. God's forgiveness is your teacher, your professor, to learning how to fear God. That's your teacher. When you stare honestly, when you look honestly at the cross and what it costs God, you know, the cross is essentially paying what everyone in this room, we all owe to God. If you've ever looked, if you've ever been offended by a good friend of yours or a spouse or a family member and it hurt and it cut deep and they knew it, and then you had like an event with them later that week or you were gonna have dinner with them that night and they sit down at the dinner table and they just start eating and chatting about the day as though, as though nothing happened, as though they didn't hurt you. And they just, they just barge in to dinner like that. What would you say? What would you know to say, hey, put the food down. We've got to deal with this first. We've got to get right. You can't, we can't just move on like nothing happened. Look, all of us in this room have done something. So we've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. We've all gone against God in the, sen in the sense that we have either reduced one of his creation, another person to a means, to a selfish end, or we've cursed them or we've hurt somebody. We have all sinned. I mean, listen, even if, even if you're like, I'm a pretty good person, if I took a video of everything you thought this week, your whole imagination, and I made a movie of it, I couldn't show it in front of your kids. You wouldn't want me to show that in front of your church. That, I mean, that, we are all broken to the core with sin, and we can't just barge into the dinner table in heaven like everything's fine. We gotta deal with it in the same way that there's something in you that says, hey, we gotta get right first. There's something in God that says, we gotta get right first. The difference is, is God doesn't want you to pay for it. You can't. It's too high of a price. So he paid for it on that cross. He paid that price. And that's a fair price for every, every selfish thought, every wicked imagination we've ever had, any wicked thing we've done. That is the just price for offending a holy and perfect God and his standard. And when you look at that, when you stare honestly at that, a couple things happen. One of them is, is you never question if God's going to betray you or if he's going to leave you out to dry. He went through that for you, for me. I don't, I don't have to fear being let down by God. Second thing you're going to do is you're not going to treat him casually. No, there's going to be a healthy, reverent fear. And it, when it becomes so glorious and wonderful to you, it's, whatever it costs, you're going to wake up and go, Lord, I want to know what you have to say. I want to know what you have to think about my life. I want to follow you. You just stare at the cross. Let the forgiveness of God be your teacher. Now, I'm going to invite Danan up here. He's going to lead us in one last song. And I just want to kind of close with this thought because I'm going a little bit off script. I know this isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but I just want to share with you one of the common things, just as a pastor, that I run into with people when we talk about forgiveness. A lot of times people, especially in a room this size, they'll say, look, I, I have asked God for forgiveness. I've tried that. And they struggle with it. And sometimes it's because there's this one thing. There's this one thing from college or from high school or their first marriage or from when they were in the service in the military or something. Something from their past. There's just one thing. And they just keep asking forgiveness for it, for the same thing, over and over and over again. I just want to tell you, if that's your story, you, it's not that you haven't asked God for forgiveness. 
you haven't let him forgive you. Those are two different things. You've asked, but you haven't let yourself receive it. So you know what it looks like to let yourself receive the forgiveness of God? It's living and walking in it and thinking of yourself in the reality. Again, we're not talking about false reality. We're talking about the reality of your standing with God. That you are forgiven. You should walk like that. You should live like that. You should laugh like that. You should be able to love people like that. You are forgiven. And every time you choose to not do that, you have a different problem. This is what I would tell you. If you're asking for the same sin's forgiveness over and over again, that same one thing, you're asking for forgiveness for the wrong sin. You know what, for, you, know what you need to be asking for forgiveness for? And this might sting a little, but it's reality. And it's a weird thing, but it's pride. It's a weird kind of pride. It's saying, God, this sin is so ugly and so dirty. You can't forgive it. And what you did on that cross for me, Jesus, wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Every time you don't allow yourself to receive the forgiveness of God so much so that it changes the way you hold your head and the way you walk and the way you talk with God. If you don't, if you don't let God's forgiveness wash over you, there's actually a weird kind of pride that's saying, Lord, it wasn't enough. You might forgive me, but I don't forgive me. You know what that says? I disagree with you, God. You're wrong. And I know it doesn't feel like pride, but that's what it is. And that's the sin you ought to confess. Say, Lord, I am sorry for having this weird pride in my sin. And I will choose, say, to let your forgiveness wash over me. So we're going to sing a closing song here. So why don't you stand as you're able, and I'm just going to ask God to do this in your heart. Just like Pastor Brendan prayed, this is God's word, not mine. This is his truth, not mine. And it is as true for you as the chairs you were sitting on. And I'm going to ask God to allow it to be true in your heart, not just in your head. And I'm going to ask God to make it true in your feelings, not just in your thoughts, that you are forgiven. If you trust in Jesus, if you look at that cross and you trust that that sin, whatever that one was, was paid for on that cross. The debt is covered. You can now have dinner with God. You can barge into heaven. Why? Because you're forgiven and Jesus paid it. And if you can do that, if you can leave here like that, you can start your journey with wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Let's sing together.